Say amen. Well, as I prepared for Acts chapter 4 this morning, I found myself thinking about Hezekiah and Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 32. The context is Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, and he's really um, taken, he's, he's growing in power and sweeping the region, conquering all the lands. And Sennacherib, um, he comes to Jerusalem and he, he's laid siege to it. And 2 Kings chapter 32, he's sent some messengers to say this to Hezekiah and, and to the people of Israel. I want to read it to you and, and point out a few things. 2 Kings chapter 32, verse 10 through 15, thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this name Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded the same Hezekiah taken away altars and high places and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no god of any nation or any kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? So Sennacherib sends a message to Israel, which essentially says, Hezekiah tore down the, the altars to other gods and told you to worship one God alone, but Hezekiah is deceiving you. No other gods in all the nations were able to deliver them or protect them from me or my fathers. Why would you think that your land's any different? Why don't you abandon Hezekiah and surrender now? The domineering king comes and declares, no one has defeated me. No one has defiled me. I've conquered any place. I've placed my foot and I intend to conquer you as well. Don't let Hezekiah be your demise. Now watch what Hezekiah does in response. What he does in response um, is, is the heritage of faith. Chapter 32, verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed. Then they prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. Hezekiah, the man of God, does not go to develop military strategy. He doesn't even try to debate the people or argue, convince them. No, the first thing he does is he grabs the prophet, and they go pray. And the scripture doesn't just say that they prayed, but they cried out unto the Lord. I imagine Hezekiah looking at Isaiah and saying, we need to go to the place of prayer, forget military strategy. Our greatest resource, our greatest means of victory will be found on our knees as we cry out unto heaven. Now, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, and I try to pray it often, when I pray, Our Father who art in heaven, I try to remind myself that what, who we're praying to calls himself Father, meaning that he loves us and cares for us, is engaged in the details of our lives. He calls himself Father, but that Father is not a Father limited to natural resources. He is the Father who is in heaven. He is creator of the entire universe and all things, and, and being creator, he, everything is subject unto him. He's not restricted by the laws of nature, but he breaks them whenever he wants to break them, and he moves and shifts 
shifts and maneuvers things however he wants to maneuver things. He has no limitation. He is distinct above all else. Remember, we've talked about this before, but the word holy literally means separate. And, and it was used as, as a phrase meaning uh, a, a cut above the rest. When we say God is holy, he is a cut above everyone else. He is outside of our restrictions. Now, that God who is outside of all restrictions calls himself my father so that when Sennacherib comes beating on my door, I'm able to go to father and cry out in prayer, making prayer my greatest resource. And so Hezekiah and Isaiah unite in prayer and access father who is in heaven. And the father who is in heaven is totally and awfully and terribly holy. And Sennacherib will fall. The scripture tells us, verse 21, the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Scripture goes on to tell us that as Sennacherib retreats and as, his, as he retreats, he's murdered. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Again, it's the heritage or the inheritance of the saints to be able to go to God in prayer and out-resource all of the enemy's resources. When Sennacherib comes with his strong arm, his military strategy, which he has conquered all people, he has been victorious. He's at least some kind of wise military leader, has military strategists amongst him. He has power and strength and chariots and weapons. He has all of those things. He has resources. But in prayer, we out-resource his resources. And in our day, in prayer, we will out-resource the resources of hell. We will out-resource the resources of culture. We will out-resource the resources of influencers who try to teach our kids things outside of God's law and his words. We will out-resource hell as we come to God in our inheritance and cry out to Father who is far above all that hell has to offer. Now, the entire point of this series has been that if we allow our school system, and, and I, I just let you know quick that I'm very pessimistic of our public governmental school system, if we allow our universities to continue to indoctrinate our kids with a materialistic Western worldview, which says that, that prayer doesn't matter, that there's some, nothing supernatural could exist, that the world that the world just popped out of nowhere as if that's in any way logical. If we continue to allow that kind of indoctrination, what we're doing is we're eventually sacrificing our inheritance, the inheritance of the saints to have hell come knocking on your door and to bury your face in the carpet and cry out to God who makes the Nacarib tremble. We must, and, and hear me say we must, you, we have no option. We must teach our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren the power of God accessible through prayer. We will not outwit the world with our intellects. We will not out-strength out or strong-arm the world. The church doesn't need to be more uh, culturally... We don't, we don't need to be trendy. We don't need better performances. We don't need better... We're not trying to com compete with the world concerning musicians. We're not trying to compete with the world. We, we need prayer and the power of God. And when the Holy Ghost falls on a people, there's nothing that can compare to that. Now we'll conclude Acts chapter 4 today and we'll find Peter and John, they're just released from prison. Now, in case you weren't here, let me remind you really quick of where we've been. Peter and John, you remember in Acts chapter 3, they go up to the temple to worship at 3 p.m. It's the highest hour of worship. And 
As they go up, there's a man who's lame from birth. He's over 40 years old, sitting, asking for money. He's begging. And so Peter and John say, silver or gold, we have not. But what we do have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we give to you. Stand up and walk. And so they heal a man who's been lame from birth. Now this man who has been lame from birth, he stands up and begins to worship in the temple, running around. Now everybody knows him. And because everybody knows him, Peter and John now have a great crowd of people wondering what in the world is going on. Peter and John tell the crowd, it's not by our own piety or our own strength or our own holiness or power that we've healed this man, but we healed him. He's been healed by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Now, the scripture tells us there were over 5,000 people who gave their life to the Lord that day. And so Peter and John, they really caused quite a big scene. And when they did this, the Sadducees, the scripture tells us, who are the, again, the culturally elite, they are the financially prosperous, they hold all the political positions of power in, in, in Judaism as well. The Sadducees, the scripture says, they come down upon Peter and John while they're preaching, they arrest them, put them in prison overnight, they threaten them, Peter and John stand bold, say, we, we ain't going to quit talking, we are who we are, and we're going to say what God asks us to say. They stand in boldness, and the scripture tells us that they released Peter and John because they were afraid of the crowds. Now, that's when we'll pick up here in verse 23. We'll find Peter and John released. They've just been threatened by the Sadducees after they spent a night in prison. Verse 23. We'll read through 37 today. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace that was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you know that the conclusion of chapter 4 is setting us up for the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, where they lie to the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John are released. They spend a night in prison. They've been threatened to no longer speak in the name of the Lord, and they're set free. 
they immediately go to a house where they find the church gathered, their friends gathered. It's likely that they were already gathered in prayer, praying for the release of Peter and John. Now, remember that things are very, very hostile. After the resurrection of Jesus, do you remember how many times Jesus walks through a wall and tells them, peace, don't be afraid? Um, Because they were hiding in upper rooms, locking themselves in, because they were afraid of the persecution that was coming. Things are Things are hostile. They, they, are, they are being pursued. It's just a few chapters away where Stephen will be stoned in Acts chapter 6. We move a little further along and we'll find um, James lose his head, the first apostle to die for the gospel. So as Peter and John spend the night in prison, it's likely that the disciples are praying for their release and for their safety. Peter and John report to the church that they've been told to no longer speak in the name of the Lord. We talked last week about the attempt of the, the, the cultural elite, the, the momentum of culture to silence the anointed ones. There were always being an attempt to silence the proclamation of the gospel. And so as Peter and John are healing the sick in power and preaching the word of God with boldness, there is an opposing force doing everything they can to intimidate Peter and John. And so Peter and John, in the moment of intimidation, look them squarely in the face and tell them, we will not back down, we will obey God. But fear, my friends, is a subtle enemy. Me. And fear, the thing about fear that was really obnoxious is that in the moment of trial, Peter and John stand their ground and pray er, and say, we will not back down. And then when they walk down, they immediately go to the place of prayer and pray for continued boldness because you may face off with the enemy and stand your ground in a moment of anointing and power and strength, but the enemy will come to you again at night when you put your head on the pillow and begin to whisper his lies. And so we can't just conquer fear on one occasion, but we need the boldness of the spirit to continue conquering fear even in moments when we find ourselves in solitude. So Peter Peter and John boldly face their opponents in the hour of threatening, but in the hour of release, they come to their community, watch this, they come to their community to ask for prayer support, and they pray for the boldness of God for continued strength. What do you learn about how the church lived there? There are times when you and I, like Hezekiah, need to find Isaiah and say, you're going to take your butt to the house of God with me, and we're going to pray. There's great wisdom and and asking for prayer support. Paul, on multiple occasions, asked for the churches to pray for him. If Paul needed people to pray for him, you need people to pray for you. Do not be too proud to ask for prayer. The altars are not a place of weakness, except for in that we are all weak. The altars are a place of wisdom, where you come and you ask someone to partner with you to see breakthrough, where you come and ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We need to get serious about covering one another in prayer, and we need to get over our our pride and our arrogance that refuse to come to the altar. So Peter and John go to the place of prayer, and they appeal to the sovereign Lord of heaven. 
Now, Hezekiah's prayer is recorded in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16. And Hezekiah prays this, O Lord of hosts and God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. When Hezekiah prays, he prays, you alone are God of all the nations of heaven and earth. You are the sovereign one. And when the apostles pray, they, they, they appeal to the sovereign Lord of the universe. The Lord of hosts who's enthroned above cherubim. Now, I want to say a few things, and I'll say it quickly, and don't hear this as a rebuke to anyone. But I'm not a huge fan of the theological persuasion that's known as dominion theology. Dominion theology, it works from Genesis where God gives dominion to Adam and Eve. And it promotes the idea that if anything is not happening for the kingdom of God and the earth, it's because the saints are not taking dominion. And if the sick aren't healed or if, the, if there's not deliverance, if people aren't being saved, it's all because the saints are not exercising their dominion. And what it does, it's, it sounds okay, and, and there are some elements of it that are certainly true, and it sounds right. Um, but what's happening in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, I want you to put your spiritual antennas on when you hear this teaching begin to come forth. What it does subtly is it puts all the pressure and all authority on the saints and it actually restricts God. It says God cannot move unless we move. And I'm going to tell you today that God can move whenever he wants to move. He is not restricted by your stupidity. Not for a moment. He's not restricted by the stupidity of the church. Now God in his sovereignty does choose to use people. But there are times where God just passes people and he uses dreams and visions. And sometimes God just knocks people down because he wants to. Okay, and so dominion theology, I don't, I don't like it for multiple reasons. Um, but, but I want us to be a people who recognize that when the apostles prayed, they prayed, God, you are sovereign over the heavens and the earth. And when Hezekiah prayed, he didn't pray, oh, God, these people are using their dominion to oppress me. So give me the strength in my own dominion to out-dominion them. Hezekiah said, no, you're God of all nations. And you are sovereign of all people. And I'm crying out for your deliverance. And so we, we want to be really careful that we don't sacrifice the sovereignty of God by overemphasizing the role of man in God's creative role in bringing his, his new creative covenant and bringing the nations to Jesus. Now, you know that I'm not... I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not, I'm not reformed in the sense that I believe that God is um, meticulous. It's called meticulous determination. Everyone say meticulous determination. I just, that uh, determinism. It, it, meticulous determinism teaches that God meticulously controls all the little details of your life. And so you have a sickness, it's because God gave you the sickness. I don't believe in the meticulous determination for, a, for even an ounce of a moment. Um, I don't believe that God, every little thing that happens is happening, happening because God ordained it. Um, but I do believe that God is perfectly sovereign over all the universe. And when God wants to intervene, he will intervene. And he tells us when he wants to intervene, when his people pray. And so there is obviously a mystery concerning the, the free will of man and God's sovereignty. And it's a mystery that we'll have to wrestle through. I'm just saying, don't grab onto the free will of man and say that everything that happens or doesn't happen is because we either are great or we were stupid. And I, I want to tell you that in most cases, we're stupid. And everything that happens that is great is probably not because of your greatness. It's probably because of the greatness of Yahweh. When the disciples came to prayer, they came to prayer and they called God the sovereign one. 
And, and notice this. They say that Pilate and Herod, they crucified Christ according to all that you had predestined and planned. So even when hell works to crush Messiah, hell doesn't realize that she's overplaying her hand. She stepped right into God's plan. God is so sovereign that he even uses the stupidity of hell to accomplish his purposes at times. Now, you can scratch your head and say, I don't understand that, and I will scratch my head with you. But what I am saying is this is a plain teaching of Scripture, that, that God is the sovereign of the universe. And we, we don't, we don't want to fall into this idea that, that we are the ultimates. So they pray, sovereign God of the universe. Along with Hezekiah, Hezekiah prayed the same thing. I, and I, I just want to say that poor theology produces poor praying. High theology drives you to the deepest places of prayer where you recognize that God alone is able. And if, and if we accomplish anything, it's because the anointing of God is on our lives. The Holy Spirit is working through us. Again, Jesus says, if you're not connected to the vine, you can do nothing. But when we are connected to God, we're able to walk in the power of the Spirit. Now, the nuance is here. We, I don't believe that man has all dominion or all authority because Jesus says, all authority is given unto me. I have all authority. Go, therefore, under my authority. And so what I believe is that we have authority as long as we are operating under the authority of Christ. And so the apostles pray, sovereign God of the universe. And then they begin to pray through Psalm chapter 2. Let me read Psalm 2 for you really quick. This is a really common and famous psalm, one you should be acquainted with. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Saying, let us, uh, the, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The scripture says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So when the disciples prayed, they prayed recognizing that when Jesus was persecuted, this was the nations gathering against the anointed. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain against God's anointed one? And the scripture says that when they rage and plot in vain against the anointed one of God, God does not bite his nails and say, oh, I've given them all a dominion, so whatever they say happens is going to happen. God actually laughs and holds them in derision, which is a further language meaning essentially he laughs some more. We can't overemphasize now how many times we see the early church praying through the Psalms. They had a high view of the Bible. They saw these things playing out as a fulfillment of prophecy. And when they went to the place of prayer, they used the Psalter as a means to pray. And we're not a liturgical church. Um, we wouldn't call ourselves liturgical by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the fact that we're not liturgical is not a good reason to ignore the Psalter. The early church prayed through the Psalms. We do well to pray through the Psalms. So as they pray, they say, Lord, you told us that the nations would rage against your Messiah. They're asking now that God would hold them in derision. 
they're asking in prayer that God would stretch out his arm and heal. They're asking for the fulfillment of the psalm that God would cause his purposes to come to pass. And so now they're, they're praying according to God's will, appealing to God's will. So as Peter and John are threatened by the high priest, the Sadducees, they turn to Psalm 2, they pray, why do the nations rage? And they're asking God, stretch out your hand to heal, continue to perform signs and wonders, and give us boldness to persevere as we're plotted against. They ask that God would hear their threats. God, hear the threats of hell. This is very much reminiscent of Hezekiah. Hear the threats of Sennacherib. Hear the threats of hell. For the apostles, rather than praying for deliverance, they prayed for boldness. They don't pray, God, never let us go through this kind of hardship again. They pray, God, give us the boldness to walk through it with the power of the Holy Spirit on our lives. They don't pray, God, suffering and persecution is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Please don't let us experience. Jesus told them that if if I'm persecuted, you'll be persecuted. Jesus told them, in this life, you're going to have tribulation. Jesus told Peter that when he's old, he'll be led away to his death. They, they, They understand that serving a crucified Messiah is embracing suffering and sorrow for the sake of the gospel. They do not pray that they would never have to walk through hardship. They pray that God would give them the boldness to walk through hardship and that the Holy Ghost would move in signs and wonders. Pray for courage. Now, God seemed to like their praying. Because the scripture says that the entire room was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. This may be an hour where we need to get on our faces and pray until the room is shaken. Until we're really sure that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That we're filled with boldness. I want to encourage you to abandon your Western materialistic worldview and begin to pray with the apostles that God would stretch out his hand and heal. Do stuff, God, that no one can excuse. Do stuff that no one can explain away. Show up in power and authority. Heal the sick so that all will stand in awe and wonder. Vindicate your gospel in power. I want to encourage you not to pray, God, please don't ever let us go through hardship, but begin to pray, God, give me the boldness and the clarity to stand in the day of trouble. Scripture continues by saying that the apostles, along with all of the disciples, they lived in fellowship as the power of God continued to move as the apostles preached, and there was great grace on them all. Seth, if you'd come for me. I'm thinking about getting some kind of lift so that when I say that, he like just falls from above this thing right here. Now, we've studied Acts chapters 1 through 4 for 14 weeks. For 14 weeks, we've walked through it. And what do we learn? We learned that the disciples were promised power in Acts 1-8. Stay here until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We learn in Acts chapter 2 that God fulfilled his promise. On the day of Pentecost, they were given power. We see that their doctrines and their lives were consistent 
They lived solely for the gospel of Christ. They healed the sick, and then they didn't talk about their own piety or their own power, how anointed they were, or try to prove the point that they were right. But when they healed the sick and they gathered the crowd's attention, they preached the shed blood of Jesus unto salvation, the name by which all men are saved. And outside of that name, no man has salvation. They were people who were consistent and had a holistic presentation of the gospel. They believed that the triune God of the universe gave the scriptures. How many times do we see the apostles praying through the scriptures, quoting the scriptures? And they lived on mission. They believed that they had a mission to see souls come into the harvest. They prayed. How much did we see the apostles praying in the first four chapters of Acts? How many prayer meetings did we witness? And they continually relied on the strength of the Spirit. They did not rely on the strength of any man's intellect. They didn't, they, with Hezekiah, they didn't say, oh God, we're threatened. Let's go get a great plan and strategy so that maybe we can avoid ever being threatened again. They didn't pray for strategy. They prayed for boldness. They didn't go work up new arguments. They asked for boldness and the power of the Spirit to stand faithful in their hour. Not to deliver them from every trial, but to deliver them through every trial with the fire of God on their lives. My entire premise for 14 weeks now has been that the Western modern church has abandoned the worldview of the apostles. And by abandoning the worldview of the apostles, we have begun to lean on the strength of the flesh, on the intellect of man, on our own reasoning. And what we need to do in this hour is abandon the reasoning of man, return to the authority of scripture and to not pray um, just to be delivered, but to pray for boldness and to expect the Holy Spirit to actually fill the house Shake us, shake our children, heal the sick. And what I, what I wanted to say This, this, this is going to sound like I'm being harsh. I'm not, I'm not being harsh for, for harshness sakes. I'm, I'm trying to pastor us here. Um, there are seminaries, Bible schools, all in our states for over 100 years now who have totally abandoned the authority of Scripture. And I don't think we realize that much of the church in the West, much more than we think, actually doesn't believe the Bible to be authoritative at all. And so, for instance, this, again, this is going to sound harsh. I'm not being harsh for harshness sakes. Um, Union Theological Seminary, the seminary where um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went in the 30s, um, was already teaching that um, the scripture is not authoritative and um, there are lots of ideologies that come to place and things that rise to the surface when the scripture is not authoritative. And you remember the story of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was actually going to the largest African-American church in New York because uh, because what he found in the other churches was a great dis- disregard for the holy word of God, that they actually didn't believe what they said that they believed, but they were just expressing this kind of hyper-liberal form of Christianity where social justice, poor, feeding the hungry, those things are important, but the actual doctrines of Christianity don't matter at all. And so, for instance, again, Union Theological Seminary, a couple years ago, they, um, they had this service where, um, where, where the, the leader of the service brought a, brought a plant in the middle of the service, and 
everyone in the seminary um, confessed their their violence towards the plant and how that the how that humanity has been is, is disregarded mother nature and we need to have a great confession of how we've harmed mother nature um, silly to us there there's a service where they they had people dressed like trees and these people come in dressed like trees and everyone bows and apologizes to the trees. I, I'm, again, I'm not being harsh for harshness sake. I just want you to know that this is what's happening in Western Christianity. And, 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 and we, we have for, for centuries, much of the church has abandoned the authority of scripture. So when you abandon the authority of scripture, then it's easy to slide into materialism and naturalism. And what you find yourself way down the road is now, not only do you not believe the scriptures, but you don't believe the God of the scriptures and your expression of faith is not faith at all. It's just an expression of, of doing kindness. Your basic premise is that humanity is good and people are kind and we should be kind. And, and that's not the premise of the gospel at all. And that's not the way that, that God has called us to live. He didn't call us to live um, leaning on the strength and the intellect of man and, and, and just being kind to one another under a redefinition of what kindness really is. And, 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 and our goal is to be loving, although we have no biblical concept of what love is. Um, we're in trouble. We've, we've been in trouble for a while. We really have been. So what happens if we don't really sure ourselves up. What happens if we don't get back to the authority of scripture? We don't really begin to believe this. We leave our kids with Sennacherib yelling down their throats that I'll destroy you. And our kids don't know anything about prayer. And our grandchildren have never been taught that the Holy Ghost is the third person of the Trinity who Jesus sent to the earth and said it would be better for us because we would have his presence every single day. We would know him. And, and we get to the place where our expression of Christianity is just about us expressing our own goodness rather than us abiding in the very presence of Christ and expressing his goodness to the earth. And those are two radically different things because what the scripture teaches is that outside of Jesus, you don't have any goodness. That you're arrogant, that we are people of the flesh, that we need to come to Jesus to die and to live lives that are totally consumed with his presence and his purposes and his goodness. I'm just asking you to actually believe this thing. I'm asking you as a church to get back to the authority of the scripture, the worldview of scripture, and to depend upon the Holy Ghost with me. I'm asking you to not be a people who live based on our own, well, I think, well, I no, we live under the authority of scripture. What does scripture say? What did God speak? And then I'm asking you to get bold. Oh, Ravenhill used to say, D.L. Moody used to say, it was a common quote. They used to all say, oh, one day there's going to be some man who grabs the Bible and actually believes it. And what he does will change the world and we will all be embarrassed of it. Because we didn't actually believe what we said we believed. I'm saying, let's believe it, man. And, and I'm begging you, you hear me, I am begging you. You raise your kids, you raise your grandkids in a Christian worldview. I'm begging you. The ideologies of the world that are tormenting us, they will destroy your children and your grandchildren. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You, you be sure that you raise your kids under the authority of the word of God. You hear me? I'm, I'm begging you. Let's go ahead and stand to your feet. I feel like I'm rapid firing a million things at once. 
Altar team, if you guys want to get in place. There are two things I want to do this morning. First, let's, first, if you don't know Jesus and you need to get right with Jesus, the only way to salvation is by the blood of the Lamb. It's not by what you did yesterday or how good of a life you live tomorrow. It's whether or not you've bowed your knee to him in repentance and you've been washed by his blood. If you need to get right with Jesus, the altars are always open for you. We'd love, any of us would love to have a discussion with you about what it means to give your life to the Lord. But second, I want us to pray this morning as we conclude. Um, I want us to recommit ourselves to the authority of scripture. I want us to kind of covenant with God that we're going to be a people who really live like the apostles lived and believed what they believed, that we're going to be consistent in our thinking. And then I want to pray for boldness. I want us to pray um, for the boldness of God to persevere through whatever trial comes our way. So two things we're going to pray that God would um, sure us up as we recommit ourselves to the scripture and we're going to pray for boldness. As I pray, the altar is going to be open. As always, if you're sick, come, come receive prayer for anything. But I want to ask you, if, if you're with me and you're saying, man, we need to really be sure that we get this thing right for the sake of our kids and the sake of our futures, I want to ask you to come get in the altars this morning and to really pray with me. So the altars are open. You can come at any time. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, first, we want to be a people of your word. We want to be a people who trust and believe and live according to the word of God. When Paul said it was God breathed, Lord, we believe that. Jesus spoke of the word. He quoted from the word. He spoke of it as absolute truth. Let the scriptures be holy to us. And, Lord, we pray that you would purify us. Lord, if in any, any way we've backed away from our conviction concerning the word of God, purify us today, we pray. Lord, teach us to raise our children, our grandchildren in a Christian worldview under the authority of the scriptures. Protect our, our generations from deceit. congregation, if you just open your hands this morning, God, we give you our hearts today. And let's pray for just for a moment for boldness for the coming hour, for the coming year, for the coming days. So God, the apostles cried out for boldness. The apostles cried out for a filling of the spirit. The apostles asked for courage and for your power to heal the sick and perform signs and wonders. So this morning, God, we come and we reiterate that prayer. We say, give us courage in an hour where the enemy wants to intimidate. Give us boldness in an hour where Sennacherib wants to threaten us. Give us, give us confidence in the word of God, in your character, in your faithfulness. Make us people of boldness, we pray, God. We don't pray for deliverance from every hardship. We pray for the strength and the courage to walk through hardship under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. We ask that you heal the sick, perform signs and wonders, that you'd show up and show off. We ask that our kids, our grandkids, that all who walk in this house would know the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that we'd encounter you.
So Seth, lead us just for a moment. Let's covenant our hearts and rest to Him. Worship team will hang out for a minute if you need to spend some more time with the Lord. If not, we bless you. We pray you have a wonderful week and a happy new year. We, we just love you so much. We're so glad you came to worship with us this morning.